Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The First World War, long time ago, but it never really ended. Sure, the fighting stopped in 1918, but many of the issues at stake in that horrendous bloodletting were never resolved and continue to affect our lives to this day, nearly a hundred years later. What was it about? Why did they fight? Did anyone even know at the time what it was all about? And how did the United States get drawn into it? As one who continues to be fascinated by the senselessness of the loss of millions of young men from various countries in Europe, uh, I knew there were brave women in England who fought for peace. Little, if anything, had been written about any American effort to fight against us joining the war until now. A new book has just been published by an author I've long appreciated, Michael Kazin. And the new book is called War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Thanks, Michael, for being with us. Uh, Happy to be here. Though not well known today, a great many Americans, liberals, socialists, and conservatives, some very strange political bedfellows united to oppose our entry into that war. If you do care about peace and democracy, and, as author John Milton Cooper says, anyone who cares about this country's role in the world should read this book. In its recent book review, Kevin Baker of the New York Times said of this book, most of all, it is a timely reminder of how easily the will of the majority can be thwarted in even the mightiest of democracies. Michael Kaysen is author of A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryant, who also figures in this book, American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, The Populist Persuasion in American History, and co-author of America Divided, The Civil War of the 1960s. He teaches history at Georgetown University in Washington and contributes regularly to such newspapers, periodicals, and websites as the New York Times, New Republic, where he has an online column. He also is co-editor of the famous Descent magazine. Again, thanks for being with us. What was your purpose in writing this book? What was the need for it? Well, I knew the centennial of the U.S. declaration of war was coming up. It comes up actually April 6th, uh, 2017, when the, US de- when the Congress declared war and uh, Wilson signed the declaration of war. And I've uh, been reading a lot about uh, World War I, various books by great European historians, and I thought, well, you know, <laughs> this was a war, as you said in your introduction, which was, you know, fairly senseless. Uh, it's a war that really shouldn't have happened, uh, and and the reason it did happen, we get into if you want to. But uh, nobody uh, really wanted the war to start, but it did anyway because of various uh, 
um, uh. feelings that, that the major powers in Europe had that the other powers would would get them if they didn't get them first. <laughs> I thought, well, um, Americans had even less reason, perhaps, to fight the war, uh, but they nevertheless did. I want to know what Americans thought about that uh, in the run-up to the U.S. declaration of war, and and I knew uh, in a sketchy way that a lot of Americans did oppose the war, and especially that the government, once the U.S. declared war, uh, passed laws, the Espionage Act in 1917, oh, amendments yeah. to it, the Sedition Act, it was called, in 1918, which cracked down really uh, to a great extent ever before in American history on people who opposed the war, on distance to the war. So that led me to think, well, there's probably more of a story here, probably a lot more... Uh, discontent, dissent about the war uh, than we know about, and and lo and behold, uh, I found that there was this broad coalition yes. in Congress and outside Congress, which really tried to stop the U.S. from preparing to fight in the war, and then right. suffered in many ways once the U.S. did go to the war. Now, today, when we think of an anti-war movement, we assume it's made up of largely liberals from the East Coast and West Coast, it looked quite different in 1914, as I discovered. You write that in much of America, resistance to militarism ran deep and wide. Tell us, please, about the arguments from the conservative members of Congress from the Midwest and West against militarism. We talk about conservatives. Uh, I'm not sure in every sense they would exactly like conservatives today. No. hundred years makes a difference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, history is about change, after all. And uh, But one thing which is common, I think, is that a lot of Southern Democrats, Republicans from away from the East Coast, resented what they saw as an elite, an economic and political elite, which mm. wanted the United States to become a large military power, throw its weight around in the mm. world, believed that that would destroy uh, what one senator called the old republic, that they thought was safe from having to fight over the, the, trouble, the troubles of, of European nations that led to so many terrible wars in the history of that continent. And so they, even though socialists and uh, Dixiecrats <laughs> uh, had very little in common otherwise, uh, they agreed that uh, a large military, uh, which would require much higher taxes uh, from the people to pay for it, uh, which would also clearly uh, embolden uh, the large manufacturing uh, concerns, making war material, which would embolden the investment houses like J.P. Morgan and Company, which would give credits, as they did to the British uh, and, and the French in the war, would all be empowered by U.S. going to war. So they, they agreed across the political spectrum against that kind of future. So I think it was really a, a common fear of what would happen if the U.S. went to war. Uh, which in many ways came true. Absolutely. You write that uh, dissenters against the war were, quote, acting on an impulse that was, by definition, profoundly conservative. I found it interesting uh, how in the 2016 presidential campaign, aside from Bernie Sanders, whom I supported, I very much liked the foreign policy as espoused by libertarian conservative Kentucky Senator Ron Paul and uh, conservative columnist George Will. They balked against an endless war on terrorism. It seems like there are similarities found in the resistance to the war in the 19-teens. And, and I what, think there are. I what was are. conservatism? It's a different matter once the U.S. does have a large <coughs> military and, and right. does have bases and allies around the world. Uh, it's a lot harder to, to sort of turn that back, uh, to go back to 
the way things were in 1914 uh, than it was just to, to sure. stay where we were in 1914. So, but, I mean, we can argue we can argue about that if we want to, but but uh, I do think you're right that that it's a similar impulse uh, that Rand Paul, actually the son of Ron Paul. Oh, Rand Paul, of course. Had, Thank you. Uh, and George Will had that. Uh, you know, if you're not in favor of a large intrusive state. And the largest uh, part of that state uh, is the military, and the most securely large part of the state is the military. Very few politicians actually oppose uh, the military getting even stronger. Yes. Uh, then um, uh, you've got a problem, you know. Uh, and so it makes complete sense for a real principled libertarian like uh, George Will, mm-hmm. like uh, Rand Paul, to uh, to oppose uh, this endless war on terrorism and to oppose the coercive state which uh, accompanies it. And as you say, I mean, the definition of words change a lot over 100 years. What was conservatism at the time? It, it, I, I think, you know, I hear the word conservatism these days, and to me, it's not really conservatism. It's just right wing. Uh, but what, what was conservatism at the time? Well, I think the best definition is that it was, it was um, you know, as, <laughs> as, the, as the word connotes, it was uh, right. uh, the ideology of people who, who sort of want to keep things the way they were. Uh, United States was, values. in 1914, was uh, gradually becoming a more urbanized society, but, but most people still lived sure. in rural areas, uh, mm-hmm. though that was swiftly changing. And, uh, and there were um, Americans, some actually on the left, who still want, who wanted to conserve a sense of small industry, uh, small family farms, who were opposed to large concentrations of, of, of capital. Yeah. Um, and of industry, uh, but but most people call themselves conservatives. Uh, really, were from uh, rural areas, or they were ones who uh, who believe that how the U.S. was changing, especially with mass immigration, which was a phenomenon of the early 20th century, just as much as it is now. Uh, that mm. they they wanted to keep the U.S. Uh, as the kind of society they'd grown up in after the Civil War. Uh, rural smallholders dominating the economy, uh, and it must be said, the majority of the population um, uh, being being white Americans from Western European roots. Yeah, they and and they wanted to keep a republic, and there was a lot of concern by a lot of uh, people at the time that it might, you know, that, that entry into First World War might uh, change the very uh, picture, the image of who we had been as a republic. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're speaking with author Michael Kazin about his brand new book, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. What was the fear about changes in U.S. military policy that U.S. entry into the war might mean? Uh, and, and did that fear come true? Well, the U.S. had a very small, very small military before 1914. Um, I think the comparisons are to Little nations like Bulgaria and Romania, which had larger militaries than the United States, mm-hmm. uh, did in 1914. Mm-hmm. U.S. had about 100,000 troops. Uh, most of those troops were stationed either in the Philippines, where the U.S. you know did have a presence because oh, yeah. the Philippines was uh, an American colony, it was right. conquered by the U.S. in the war of uh, against Spain in right. 1898 and afterwards, um, um, and. Uh, there was uh, a navy which was growing, uh, but was not as large as the British navy, which was the largest and mightiest military in the world. For sure. Um, and uh, and 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 actually, most American soldiers were were stationed uh, in the West, uh, where they were guarding the Native American population. <laughs> um, 
which was still, you know, people still had a fear that maybe the Native Americans, the Indians would rise up uh, against uh, hmm. the white conquerors. Hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the military was used, actually, uh, the National Guard especially, to put down strikes by workers. Uh, there were, as I'm sure you know, there were... Um, Huge strikes in the United States so, on the railroads in 1877 and uh, 1894. Uh, there were smaller strikes in various parts of the country in the early 20th century. Um, and the National Guard uh, was often called out in, uh, uh, in various states to put down these strikes. And once in a while, the U.S. military was as well. But generally, um, uh, there was no draft. Uh, there had not been a draft since the Civil War. Uh, the military was a very small institution, which most Americans have very little to do with. Yeah. Didn't want to uh, expand into uh, the world all over, although, as you say, we were certainly deeply into the Philippines. Uh, Tell us about the anti-war movement's relationship with President Wilson before he won re-election in 1916. I was reminded of uh, 1964 when uh, our Lyndon Johnson was the peace candidate. Yeah, that's right. The slogan of 64 that people like I had in the anti-war movement was, part of the way with LBJ. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what, what was uh, the... uh, Johnson's official slogan for that campaign was all the way with LBJ. Right. Um, no, it's a great question, and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's one of the most interesting things about this episode in history, I think, that, yeah. that Wilson was a very sly politician, and I think uh, was, was genuinely ambivalent about U.S. going to war. I mean, he understood that the U.S. entered this war, which was by far the greatest, bloodiest uh, war in human history, yes. uh, that the U.S. would not be the same afterwards. Um, and and so, on the one hand, he was an Anglophile. His mother was was, was English-born. Uh, all his favorite political models were English. Uh, people like William Gladstone and, Ed, and the great uh, political theorist Edmund Burke. Um, and he he thought it'd be a terrible thing if the Germans actually won the war, um, World War One. At the same time, you understood most Americans uh, were leery about getting into the war, and there was this large uh, anti-war coalition which was pushing to keep the U.S. out. Uh, so he he went back and forth. He he wanted to build up the military, uh, but not as much as some uh, warmongers like Theodore Roosevelt wanted to. Sure. Uh, he kept meeting with people in the uh, right. anti-war coalition, people like Jane Adams and others. Yeah, that was who I talk about, uh, including socialists like uh, Maurice uh, Mars Hillquit. Um, and and so he, he tried to keep both sides as happy as he could uh, for a while. Um, and as you say, he ran the 1916 campaign uh, on the on the slogan, he kept us out of war. Right. And a lot of people on the left, and almost everybody in the anti-war coalition I wrote about, both Republicans and Democrats and socialists, uh, supported him uh, in that in that election. If they hadn't, uh, he would have lost. That's true indeed. And we'll talk later about what if he had lost. Uh, the anti-war people were not isolationists, as some were charging, and some have charged. Even Woodrow Wilson spoke of the idea of peace without victory. What kind of participatory international order did they, the peace people and Wilson, seek to make real? How did the that idea compare with the actual peace which came out of Versailles? Uh, what they wanted was um, uh, perhaps utopian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a world uh, in, which, in which nations would, um, uh, would be forced to mediate their disputes, uh, before they went to war, in which there would be a a, a world body uh, such as became the League of Nations, uh, but much weaker than the League of Nations actually became, which would which would um, uh, perhaps have an army uh, which could put down mm-hmm. 
uh, revolts with support of other nations of the world, not revolts, but but, but intervene in, in wars between nations before they got too serious. Uh, mm-hmm. Their international law would be much stronger. Uh, women would have a lot more, a much larger role in in societies uh, because women were were seen as a much more peaceful gender <laughs> than yes. men. Of course, uh, women did not then fight in, in wars or, or not yet part of uh, militaries. Um, so it was really a vision of a democratic, harmonious world in which there'll be self-determination for people in all nations, uh, uh, empires would not exist. Uh, it was, it was a quite a radical vision. Um, and Wilson came to it later than people in the anti-war coalition did. Well, what actually happened is a uh, piece of that victory uh, became an oxymoron, not surprisingly, perhaps. Uh, and uh, the victors in World War One, um, especially the French and the, and the British and the Italians, who suffered a lot more than, than the United States had, and been fighting the war a lot longer than the U.S. had. Uh, imposed a, uh, a punitive uh, peace on the Germans uh, and the uh, Austrians, the, the leading uh, combatants in the war. And they broke up the German Empire. They broke up, broke up the Austrian Empire. They, they, they forced uh, the Germans to pay reparations, uh, mm. which uh, helped lead to an economic crisis uh, in Germany in the 1920s. Um, and that all, you know, among other things, helped to lead to uh, the bitterness in Germany, which uh, helped to lead to the rise of, 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 of the Nazi Party and, yeah. and, and uh, its leader, Adolf Hitler. So uh, the peace of that victory became a punitive peace, uh, mm. and it sowed a lot of bitterness, as punitive pieces tend to do. <laughs> they sure do. So women had a big role in the anti-war movement, both here and in England, where uh, both were also fighting for women's suffrage at the same time. In your book, Jane Addams stands out as St. Jane, uh, and you quote her as saying in 1915, I have unlimited faith in President Wilson. Tell us, please, about her, uh, Jane Addams, and why she deserves to be better known by women's political groups today. Well, most people, if they know her name, know her as... Uh, the founder of uh, Hull House, this uh, great altruistic institution in Chicago, which was formed in the uh, 1880s and still exists, actually, in some forms there today, uh, which was a sort of pioneer uh, group of mostly middle-class, upper-class men and women who, who wanted to help uh, the immigrant poor uh, in Chicago at that time, uh, set of various institutions to do that. Uh, but but uh, Jen Adams was sort of had her mind and, <laughs> and heart in lots of causes, uh, feminism, um, uh, progressive uh, reform, uh, she supported labor unions, and peace was, was always one of her, world peace was always one of her, 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 her biggest causes, and she became the president of what at the time was the largest um, uh, peace organization in America, it was formed in 1915, the Women's Peace Party. Yes. Uh, and the Women's Peace Party stood for the kind of uh, world order that I, I, I mentioned before, a more womanly world order, you might say, mm-hmm. um, in which discussion and mediation would replace uh, belligerence and, uh, and aggression and war. Uh, and she took a lot of uh, heat um, from, from people like Theodore Roosevelt uh, um, and others uh, who thought women had no business uh, messing around in diplomacy. Women had no business messing around in, in military affairs. Uh, and um, uh, she um, went over to the Hague, uh, yes, the capital of the Netherlands, a neutral nation at the time, uh, in 1915, and was the the, uh, the the chairman, as they were called, with the chairwoman of a, a international body of women, uh, which 
uh, tried to get the neutral nations to push the belligerent nations at the time to uh, a peace agreement. Um, and then she, after this was over, this conference was over, she and other mostly Americans who came with her uh, over to Europe went to various European capitals and pleaded with uh, heads of state and foreign ministers in Germany, in England, in France, in other countries, uh, in Austria-Hungary, to, uh, to listen to the neutral nations, uh, and the women from the neutral nations especially. Um, she failed in this, but uh, she continued to push for, uh, for peace uh, during once the U.S. declared war as well as uh, before it, and yeah. and there she was became really as unpopular as she ever had been. But I should say, you know, that she was in many ways redeemed because in 1931 she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize uh, by um, you know, the Nobel Committee uh, in sort of recognition uh, of all her efforts for years and years in favor of peace, and also I think in recognition of. The fact that by 1931, most people agreed, yeah, Whoopa won. That was not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I think... So it's sort of an apology peace prize in a sense. I think, well, it's unclear to me how how the support was before the war and during the war. And certainly, I believe I, I read uh, the, in your book that by 1931, uh, about 70% felt the war was a mistake. You write, I think this is interesting, you write that the most impressive thing about that gathering in The Hague of some 2,000 women was that it occurred at all. Why do you say that? Well, because... Because it was the women? The idea of thousands of women traveling uh, across borders, sometimes very militarized borders, of course, True. if the war was going on in Europe, uh, or, or coming across the ocean, uh, having the temerity, if you will, having the chutzpah, mm -hmm. uh, to use a Yiddish term, uh, to lecture men in the world uh, about you know what they should do and to really believe that they had uh, the possibility of changing history of, of actually stopping the largest war in the history of the world, that, that I think, uh, was in itself remarkable. Um, uh, I th in retrospect, uh, it's not surprising that they failed, <laughs> no. but uh, um, well, it, it's, it's remarkable that they even made the attempt, and they had confidence that they had some possibility of succeeding. There was interesting, uh, a fair amount of uh, citizen diplomacy at the time, even Henry Ford, who I never would have guessed anything about his, yeah, his trip yeah. over there. Maybe just briefly about uh, his uh, trip on the Oscar, too. Yeah, well, Henry Ford, who was um, probably the most famous business person in, Ameri in, in the world, not just America at the time, because the Model T Ford, which was you know the first Huge. affordable car, <laughs> yeah, um, you know he was a phenomenon, and his and his his automobile was a phenomenon. Not surprisingly, uh, he was uh, a pacifist uh, in 1914-1915 when the war began, and he was he believed well as somebody who had his, his world renowned, he could maybe do something about yeah. uh, about the war. So he decided to ch charter a ship. Uh, a Norwegian ship, which was a ship neutral. neutral nation at the time, uh, at the end of 1915, and bring along a lot of uh, pacifists and other peace-minded people from the United States to go over to to Europe to uh, do what Janadza tried to do, in effect, uh, with with the women's uh, peace conference right. a few months earlier, to try to convince uh, neutral nations to put together a committee to try to pressure the belligerent nations to stop the war, uh, to find peace terms for the war. Uh, and this was a, seen as a great folly by um, a lot of uh, journalists uh, in this country and, and other countries as well. Um, Henry Ford was, of course, had a lot of 
was admired for what he'd done uh, in terms of uh, of industry uh, manufacturing, but but people thought he was out of his league. Uh, um, mm. That he didn't really know much about these uh, these the, the the issues uh, that the war was involved, and and that and then also um, um, he really he made he made great promises, which he clearly couldn't follow through on. He said at one point, "We'll get the boys home by Christmas," and. The ship didn't leave until early December, 1915. I'm sorry, we get the boys out of the trenches by Christmas. Right. There are no American boys over there yet. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty grandiose, uh, of course, to to uh, imagine that uh, three weeks after taking off uh, uh, Henry Ford's great uh, renown and uh, and uh, his entourage that came with him would be enough to to stop the war. Well, it you know, does... a lot of other some other Americans said. I have some quotes in my book. Uh, other Americans said, "Well, at least he's trying to do something. You know, at least uh, uh, he's making an attempt. He's putting his money where his mouth is, so to yeah. speak." Um, and Jen Adams uh, at a dinner with with Ford and his wife a few months before the the ship took off had actually inspired him to do this. Yeah, and sometimes uh, people with tremendous political or, or money power, I should say, think uh, they can have a tremendous amount of political power as well. <laughs> I think we, I think we have a certain yeah. parallel there, but but uh, we won't we, get too far. I, 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 uh, it's interesting. Uh, over the last year, I've I've been interviewed a lot and written a lot about about the political campaign and um, populism. Yeah. Uh, I'm often asked, you know, what political figure does. Does Donald Trump resemble the most? And and I think in some ways Henry Ford uh, yeah. qualifies not so much for his uh, peaceful uh, uh, feelings, uh, which he gave up by the way once he was to yes. the war. Yes. Uh, but but because he believed that you know because he was successful in business, he he should have his way in pretty much anything uh, right. he did. And also, and Ford Ford was uh, was very um, dubious of, uh, of immigration in, in the United States, and uh, unlike I think Trump was quite an anti-Semite. Yeah, yeah, he was for sure. And there are so many interesting personalities in this book, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918. We're talking with the author, Michael Kazin. Before reading your book, I will confess I had never heard of Claude Kitchen. He was an interesting mix of racism and populism, and he was very much against the war. Tell us about Claude Kitchen. Yeah, most historians have never heard of the guy. Um <laughs> Yeah, partly because he was a congressman, not a senator. Claude um, um, Kitchen was a congressman from the second district of North Carolina, northeastern Carolina, and and his uh, his early career was was ignominious from from uh, our point of view today, and uh, you know, right-minded people at the time too. He was a segregationist. Uh, yes. He was a white supremacist. He was one of the people in North Carolina who was involved in in uh, terrorizing black voters. Mm. Um, uh, uh, in 1898, uh, in helping to uh, convince the legislature of North Carolina to pass laws which, in effect, disenfranchised most African American voters there, and he actually replaced in Congress uh, the last um, uh, African American congressman from the South uh, until uh, the middle of the of the 20th century, a guy named mm-hmm. George White. Um, um, and because uh, black voters were were scared to come out and vote, yeah. so you know uh, he, he didn't start as someone uh, anyone should admire, but uh, he was uh, as was true of a lot of other Southern Democrats at the time. Someone who, as I mentioned before, was very suspicious of the of the plans of economic elites who wanted to build up the military um, and wanted the U.S. to have a a larger, more aggressive role uh, abroad. Um, he was an economic populist uh, with a small p. Uh, he he thought that uh, 
Income tax was a good idea because it would be imposed at least first only on the, on the richest Americans. Um, um, he was in favor of small farmers as opposed to large agribusiness. Uh, and by when when uh, the Democrats took back Congress uh, when Woodrow Wilson was elected president, uh, Kitchen had enough uh, uh, his status was high enough uh, among his fellow uh, congressmen uh, that they elected him majority leader. Uh, and also chair of the Ways and Means, Means Committee, the tax writing committee yeah. uh, in the House. And, and in those positions, he had a lot of power, uh, both in terms of being a spokesman for the party, uh, but also because um, he could uh, sort of block uh, or try to block uh, um, bills that would uh, raise taxes to pay for the military. And so he tried to make those taxes as fair as possible, as egalitarian and progressive as possible. Um, but also he was uh, someone who... Um, could stand up to and did stand up to the president of his own party, Woodrow Wilson, which is a kind of daring thing to do. Yeah. Uh, when Wilson began to tilt towards uh, wanting to get the U.S. into the war, uh, Kitchen made very clear he was not going to go along with this. He, he voted against the war, one of the 50 uh, Congress people who did vote against the war, um, most of whom were Republicans. Yes. Uh, and and uh, and then during the war, he continued to oppose the draft. It was instituted. He continued to, as majority leader, uh, continued to try to uh, uh, make taxation more more equal. Uh, so he was an interesting figure, I think, yes, uh, so. who should make us, you know, question whether uh, even someone uh, whose views on race were as uh, terrible as his certainly were. Yeah. Uh, there are other sides sometimes to people like like him. Absolutely, um, and there was that had an interesting coalition uh, between uh, a black socialist like A. Philip Randolph, yes. uh, who opposed the war um, uh, vociferously, and Claude Kitchen, uh, someone who didn't want A. Philip Randolph uh, to have a vote, <laughs> but but did support his view on the war. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, strange political bedfellows. When I was in the yep. state senate, you had to work. You know, your enemy on one thing could be uh, your exactly. best friend on something else. Another name I'd never heard of, Morris Hillquit. Tell us about him, please. Morris Hillquit was a member of the Socialist Party. Uh, this was a time when the Socialist Party was as strong as it ever was or would be in America. Um, had over 100,000 members. It had uh, legislative seats in places uh, like Nevada and uh, Oklahoma, uh, uh, as well as uh, in New York State. Morris Hillquit was a labor lawyer. Uh, lawyer for the garment workers unions in New York City, where, which were mostly made up of Jewish and Italian immigrants. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an immigrant himself from Latvia. Um, and uh, he was uh, a leading spokesman for the Socialist Party in international uh, affairs. He spoke and read uh, lots of languages, European languages. Uh, and um, also, uh, in 1917, he ran for mayor of New York, uh, on an anti-war platform, uh, this was a time in the fall of 1917 when the U.S. had entered the war already, and and people were being put in jail just for giving speeches against the war, yes. uh, or for making comments to their friends about how much they hated, you know, Woodrow Wilson, for example, uh, for going into the war. So this was a, in itself, a courageous thing to do, and it was it was a sign of how much anti-war sentiment there was in the country, or at least in New York City at the time, the biggest city in the country, that uh, he got about 23 percent of the vote, and for a while, this was a four-person race, and and for a while, some people uh, were fear, feared, some pro-war people feared that, that he would actually win uh, the election, uh, which would have been quite a statement, uh, Americans opposed to the war. In fact, we know from Woodrow Wilson's private papers that there was talk about actually indicting him uh, mm. for 
indicting Hillquit for uh, 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 giving speeches against the war, which uh, some people argued were against the Espionage Act. But uh, it was clear that would have made him to a martyr and would have won him probably more votes in New York City for mayor. So that they didn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, martyrs, the power of martyrs. Your book is is clearly a part of the reality that history is never closed. Fighting Bob LaFollette. You know, I had heard of him, but I hadn't known that much about him. Fighting Bob LaFollette was a U.S. senator. He, 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 As you write, he had hostility to both big business and war. He became, quote, a pariah to his colleagues, but a hero to many citizens. Tell us about him. What is his status today in, in his home state of Wisconsin, and should he be better known today, Bob LaFollette? Yeah, well, uh, he's considered uh, uh, to be, by, by most historians of the Senate, one of the great U.S. senators, because he, he did speak out um, very eloquently uh, about various progressive measures in the early 20th century, taxation and labor and, and others, um, was behind a bill uh, that for the first time gave uh, seamen on the high seas uh, in American vessels certain rights of labor uh, they hadn't had before. Um, but uh, uh, he he actually was one of the few people in Congress uh, who did continue to speak out against the war during the war itself. And uh, and he was um, he could do this politically because he was from a state uh, where there are a lot of German Americans, Scandinavian Americans, uh, who who tended, you know, either because they're from neutral nations uh, like Norway and Sweden, or from Germany, <laughs> where of course uh, the U.S. was was fighting um, their former countrymen. Uh, so it was safe, was safer politically for him to speak out against the war. But nevertheless, uh, it was dangerous to do in the country as a whole. And in fact. When he did this uh, in 1917, the Senate Act seriously debated a resolution to expel him from the Senate, uh, which had not been done for any senator since uh, uh, Southern senators, uh, right before the Civil War, uh, had joined the Confederacy <laughs> instead of going to the U.S. Right. back to the U.S. Congress uh, after the election of 1860. So, so that was obviously an unusual circumstance. Um, he was not expelled from the Senate for various uh, reasons, but. Um, but he can. But he continued to be someone who who thought the war had been a mistake. Who was not going to change his views because the U.S. had declared war. Um, and and I think you know we should see him as as uh, perhaps a prophet uh, mm -hmm. because he did warn that if the U.S. went to the war, it would be impossible to achieve a peace without victory. It would be impossible to achieve a really strong uh, international body like the League of Nations, which would. Which would make war impossible. Um, this would not be, as Wilson said, uh, the war to end all wars. Uh, it it, it could, couldn't possibly be be that. The bitterness would be too strong, argued Lafollette, and I think I think he was right. In 1924, Lafollette runs yes. president on an independent party ticket, the Progressive Party ticket, and uh, he doesn't win, of course, but uh, uh, he does win his home state of Wisconsin, and he wins. Uh, uh, close to twenty percent of the vote, uh, which was you know pretty, Huge. pretty uh, extraordinary for a, a candidate who um, you know had been seen as a, a traitor <laughs> by a lot of people during World War One. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Is he well respected, well regarded, well known in the state of Wisconsin now? I think he is. Yeah, I'm not from I'm not from Wisconsin. Right. Don't spend much time there. You have to ask someone from Wisconsin. Yeah. But yeah, I mean his name is well known. There's biographies of him which I could draw on. Uh, his son actually. Robert LaFollette Jr., who was an assistant to him in the Senate, um, ran for the Senate and was and was elected uh, several times in the 1930s, and then oh. and then lost his seat to a guy everyone has pretty much heard of, uh, a guy named Joseph McCarthy. Oh. 
<laughs> yeah, there are some uh, interesting politics in that state. Of course, Eisenhower, you know, 1961, introduced us to the term military-industrial complex. But as you write, there was widespread concern about the political power of the munitions industry at the time. Tell us about the power of this concern. Well, as I said before, the the military was not very strong. Um, right. The U.S. was making munitions for the British and the French. Most of the guns, actually, the rifles that the British and the French were using by 1916 were American-made. Uh, uh-huh. and came across <clears throat> the high seas in American or British or French ships, which uh-huh. the Germans did their best to torpedo. Oh, yeah. Um, not surprisingly. Um, but, you know, the industries grew, and uh, Americans began to make uh, planes and uh, some early tanks and uh, jeeps and other kinds of uh, vehicles. Uh, and the uh, machine guns and, and, of course, uniforms as well. Uh, so, you know, this became an important economic interest. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, wrong to say that that's, the U.S. got into the war to protect those interests. Uh, right. I don't think uh, Wilson was thinking crassly of the U.S. economic interests when he decided to yeah. give a speech to Congress in early April 1917 calling on the U.S. to declare war. But certainly, uh, you can look at where at, at the senators and Congress people who were in favor of going to war before then, uh, and they tended to come from heavier industrial areas. They tended to come from um, places like New England, which had a lot of munitions plants as well, and which also were were full of people much more from English backgrounds uh, mm. than from uh, you know, German or Austrian or Hungarian or Russian backgrounds. Um, so, so. Um, you know, the munitions interests were one of the reasons why I think uh, uh, a lot of people in Congress began to tilt towards wanting to go to war. They weren't the only one. And there was a lot of concern about that political power calling the shots. And you mentioned the, uh, you know, the German U-boat attacks. Uh, you know, looking back in history, they, they appear to be shocking and barbaric. But there was, there was an, a context with these attacks that I think most Americans uh, were not aware of. What yeah, without excusing them. I mean, it's right, a terrible thing right. to be on a be a passenger on a ship, and, oh, yeah. and all of a sudden you're you know you're Dead. you're you're swimming for your life if you're not killed immediately. Yeah. Uh, it was a kind of warfare which was new and seemed dastardly and uh, uh, cowardly even uh, to people. It was you know even compared to terrorism. <laughs> um, uh, but, but at the same time, um, the the British were. Uh, blockading the North, they had mines right. in the North Sea, which was the only sea route uh, uh, to to Germany, yeah. um, and that meant that a lot of Germans were starving. Yeah. Uh, they were used to importing a lot of their food from the United States and from Argentina and places like that on the other side of the Atlantic, and they couldn't get the food from there. So, so as the war went on, more and more Germans, uh, children, old people, especially, uh, uh, had malnutrition and some starved yeah. to death. Um, and so the Germans argued. Um, that they had to use what weapons they had to try to win the war and to win it quickly before uh, the society really fell apart, uh, and of course before they lost the war. And and they, their their um, fleet was uh, they, it had been built up by Kaiser Wilhelm before World War One, but right. it was pretty much bottled up in its ports in the North Sea, and they 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 couldn't bring the bring the ships out. Uh, they would have been destroyed by the the surface ships. They would have been destroyed by a far superior British navy. So so. Um, they argued militarily that the, the only weapon they had uh, to try to equalize uh, the odds against uh, the the British Navy um, and you know uh, some U.S. ships they were helping uh, was was uh, the to U-boats. 
yeah. uh, use submarines. Yeah. Uh, and there was a complicated history of, of how U.S. negotiated, uh, prodded the Germans not to attack uh, uh, neutral ships, uh, American neutral ships, which are not carrying munitions, by the way, um, uh, but were carrying passengers. Um, and uh, the Germans, for a while, after the Lusitania, uh, which was a British ship, which was carrying munitions, was torpedoed and sank. It was yes. a huge, a huge story uh, uh, you know, all over the world when that happened in, in early 1915. Uh, for a while, for about mm, roughly um, 18 months after that, uh, uh, the Germans did uh, abide by some of the uh, agreements that uh, they made with, with Wilson uh, not to uh, torpedo neutral ships, not to torpedo passenger ships without the U-boats surfacing and warning the ships and trying to get passengers off the ships, uh, which was a more humane (laughs) form of warfare, of course. Uh, But then eventually uh, the Germans went back on the pledge that they'd made uh, to Wilson um, and resumed unrestricted uh, U-boat warfare. And that really was the, the turning point, I think. After that point, Despite the fact that anti-war feeling was so st- was still strong in the United States, uh, it was probably inevitable the U.S. would would get into the war. So it seems. Again, the book is War Against War: The American Fight for Peace. Bert Cohen here. We're talking to the author Michael Kazin. The currently accepted history of the war points directly to the Zimmerman Telegram as what finally tipped the balance, irrevocably forcing the U.S. into the war. Please, if you could, tell the listeners what the telegram was. And what it really was that, that actually forced us in the war, it sounds like you kind of already did about, uh, you know, the unrestricted yeah, uh, submarine yeah, the warfare. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, the Zimmer Telegram was, um, I think I say in the book, uh, perhaps the stupidest diplomatic <laughs> message ever sent, at least that I know of, uh, <laughs> in modern diplomatic history. Um, Zimmerman was the um, foreign secretary of uh, Imperial Germany, uh, the Kaiser's foreign minister, and uh, he sent a <coughs> a message in February to um, uh, to the Mexican government. Um, the Mexican Civil War was going on at the time, but the government uh, was fairly stable and uh, in Mexico. and And he basically tried to make a deal with with the Mexicans, uh, which he thought would be a deal that that nobody but the Mexican uh, government uh, would hear about. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said. If we enter uh, the war against the United States, the U.S. either we declare war on the U.S. or the U.S. declares war on us, um, then um, you, if you declare war on the United States as well, you know, sort of start, start a two-front war in effect against mm-hmm. the United States, we, the Germans, will help you try to get back uh, all or some of the states the U.S. Um, uh, conquered from Mexico during the Mexican War of 1848. Well, this was a you know, <laughs> You know, really stupid thing to do. He didn't clear this with anybody, by the way, no, uh, when he sent it. So it wasn't uh, real policy. Uh, pardon me? It wasn't Germany's policy. He just did it on his own, huh? His own. And, okay. and uh, um, it was, I mean, the, the, first of all, the Mexicans were involved, still involved in the own civil war. They, they had no capability to, to fight the United States. Uh, um, they would not have gotten agreement of all Mexicans to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the idea that the United States, a far mightier nation than Mexico, was actually going to, Give back uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, <laughs> parts of Utah, Colorado, Nevada, um, which were conquered by the United States in the war more than 50 years earlier, was was never really in the cards. Let's put it that way. Um, and of course, and and Zimmerman was also stupid because he he forgot, it seems, uh, that or or never knew for sure that every. Um, uh, diplomatic, every piece of, of, of diplomatic correspondence that the that the Germans sent uh, 
was being intercepted at the time by uh, by the British. Um, so uh, the code had been broken, and uh, the British basically controlled access to the undersea cables, uh, telegraph cables that went underneath the Atlantic uh, to Mexico and to the United States. So. So uh, the British were, of course, read this read this telegram, uh, were delighted I'm sure. by it, <laughs> I'm sure. uh, and uh, gave it to American and British journalists. Uh, and of course, this became a huge uh, a huge topic. And I think it it helped to turn uh, more Americans uh, against the Germans and be more friendly towards the idea of U.S. going to war. But most newspapers at the time, if you go back and and read them and look at the summaries of their editorials in the um, Literary Digest, which was a very useful publication at the time, which uh, which did this, you find that you know, they they said, well, this is ridiculous, but it, it didn't lead most newspapers to say, now we need to declare war. Uh-huh. Uh, it was really the submarines, the idea that the American ships would not be able to go across the Atlantic as was their right as a you know, neutral country uh, to deliver goods to Europe, uh, including munitions. <laughs> uh, most Americans thought, you know, this was. Just a a, a um, uh, clearly against international law. Uh, it was a kind of piracy in the high seas, and and this I think did yeah. turn, uh, if not most Americans, certainly most people in Congress uh, against the Germans and, and turn them to favor going to war. Even so, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll stop here. It's a very long answer, I realize, but That's even right. so, I think there's also evidence uh, that shows. That even Americans were angry at the at the Germans for breaking their pledge, uh, even though they were angry at Zimmerman for for this uh, 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 ridiculous <laughs> attempt to bring Mexico into the war. Um, if war happened, uh, there's still huge sentiment of keep of U.S. keeping out, uh, mm. and it was pretty clear that that. Uh, if a referendum had been held, a popular referendum, which yes. a lot of people in the anti-war coalition wanted to be held, um, that it would have been very close whether U.S. Uh, whether most citizens, ordinary citizens, wanted to go into war or not. But of course, that's that's not what happened. Uh, Congress did not hold the referendum. Yeah, yeah, and there hasn't been one since, and that's one of the things that I want to make sure we talk about again before the show ends here. Um, one of the things that came out of the war uh, was uh, the civil rights movement. In, in what ways did agitation against the war particularly affect black Americans and kind of plant the seed for the civil rights struggle? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good question, very important. Well, um, Jim Crow, or the segregation laws, right. were really uh, solidified in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, not right after the Civil War, as uh, some, people, some people think. Um, and um, uh, so once the war begins, um, most African Americans were, were, were too busy fighting these, these uh, restrictions on their rights to get involved in, uh, in the anti-war coalition, though, though it's clear the even more conservative black leaders like Booker T. Washington favored peace and, and did not think war is a good idea at all. Um, when the U.S. does declare war, um, then there's agitation, uh, of course, to, to give uh, black soldiers <clears throat> you know, equal positions in the military uh, mm-hmm. and to um, uh, make sure that, that they would uh, you know, have a role to play uh, in the war. Uh, but uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, the leader of the NAACP, um, uh, at first was against the war, and then he thought, well, once we're in the war, at least this might become a way for black uh, men to prove uh, that they're as good Americans as white men are, and then after that, perhaps uh, they'll be able to to fight restrictions on their on their rights once they come home. 
but there was a large group of African Americans who who thought, why should we be fighting for right. <laughs> for uh, a country which uh, whose leaders, including Woodrow Wilson and a Southerner, are, are don't think we are equal citizens, are not treating us as equal citizens, are not are not uh, allowing us to vote in in the states where we're most numerous in the South. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, what's about that? And and so uh, as I mentioned before, uh, A. Philip Randolph, uh, who becomes one of the most important leaders of the civil rights yes. movement in the twenties, uh, is opposed to the war. Um, Ida B. Wells, Ida Wells Barnett, oh, yeah. who was a leader of the anti-lynching uh, struggle, uh, is very critical of the war as well. Uh, some black soldiers in uh, Houston, where they're facing a lot of uh, um, abuse, uh, violent and otherwise, by the white authorities there, they actually go on a, a murderous rampage yeah. uh, uh, against white citizens in, uh, in in Houston at one point. Uh, they're so angry about the way they're being treated. Um, and there's uh, groups, not the NAACP, but other groups, uh, which are um, hold uh, protest meetings about uh, how blacks are being treated. There are riots uh, during the war, uh, started by whites who don't like black people moving into uh, white neighborhoods. Uh, so the war is is the beginning of a very fraught period in American race relations. Uh, uh, it leads into the 1920s, which is the period of some of your listeners might know the New Negro and uh, people like Marcus Garvey lead a huge uh, uh, black nationalist movement. Uh, and really, in some ways, the modern civil rights movement, you can argue, is born uh, yeah. during the crisis of World War One. Yeah, it's fascinating, really. It's amazing how much stuff comes out of that. And you write that the Democratic National Convention of 1916, quote, could almost have been mistaken for an enthusiastic gathering of anti-war activists. It was a heady very optimistic time for the war against the war. Wilson ran in 1916 as the peace candidate. Shortly thereafter, led us into the war. You spec. This is fascinating to me. You speculate on how it might have been better had his pro-war opponent Charles Evan Hughes won instead. Uh, that's a fascinating analysis, and a lot of it has to do with the, with not standing up against your president of of your party. Tell us about that a little, please. Yeah, well, you know, historians are always warned about it and always warn other people about making what are called counterfactual. Uh, oh, but it's so much fun. Statements, you know. Uh, you know, what if Hitler had gotten into that art institute in Vienna, you know, uh, right. kind of thing. Um, uh, but, you know, there are certain, some historians uh, draw a distinction. I think it makes some sense to draw a distinction between counterfactual history, things which, which sort of far fetched to imagine. Uh, might have happened, or at least the uh, consequences of it are far-fetched uh, to imagine, uh, and and sort of what you might call virtual <laughs> uh, history, which is things that certainly came close to happening. Right. Uh, and uh, we don't know what would have happened if Hitler got into the Vienna, you know, Art Museum. He still probably would have served in the German army, which which had uh, uh, had a lot to do with. Oh yeah. Uh, who he became? Know, his, his bitterness and, and led to him being uh, leader of anti-war, of of, uh, of, of anti-Semitic uh, yeah. and anti-radical Germans. But nineteen um, sixteen election, very close election. Um, Wilson won the popular vote fairly easily, as Hillary Clinton did this year. But mm-hmm. the vote was very <laughs> close, and and it came down to California, uh, which reported late uh, mm. before we had you know CNN and MSNBC, um, and. Uh, there were 3,800 votes, uh, roughly, that Wilson won that uh, state by, uh, which, of course, doing the math meant that if fewer than 2,000 votes had turned the other way, uh, Hughes could have won that state very, very narrowly. Well, Hughes was a Republican. Um, He had not 
uh, in the campaign uh, said that he was definitely wanted the U.S. to go to war, but but um, his advisors of foreign policy, which he didn't know much about, he was a former mayor of New York, of, uh, governor of New York, and a judge. Um, his his top advisors on foreign policy were very belligerent. They were uh, some of the most pro-war people in America: Theodore Roosevelt, the former president, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, the leading. Uh, Senate, uh, leading Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, L. Hugh Root, a former, uh, Secretary of War, a very powerful international lawyer, uh, and several others. Um, so it's likely, though not for sure, we never knows, uh, that if Hughes had won the election narrowly, um, uh, he, his main advisors would have been pushing him to declare war, maybe even sooner than, than Wilson, uh, decided to declare war. And if that, and, and if, and if Hughes had wanted to go to war, um, as I think he probably would have, um, he would have done so as a Republican. Now, as I mentioned before, a leading um, part, a very important part, a very numerous part of the anti-war coalition uh, was made up of Democrats, uh, yes. especially Southern Democrats like Claude Kitchen, and, and a large proportion of the Democratic caucus in Congress was from the South, uh, the so-called Solid South at that time. Um, because Wilson was one of them, because he had been ambivalent about going into war, once he decides to take the country into war or ask Congress to declare war in 1917, most of those Democrats support him. But they, had, they were very suspicious of, of, of TR. They were very suspicious of Lodge. They were very suspicious of the large banks and munitions makers, all of whom were led by Republicans. And so if Hughes had been elected and, and tried to take the country into war, um, I think it's quite possible there would have been much more opposition in Congress to doing so. Right. He still would have carried the vote, who knows, but, but this Congress was uh, you know, fairly evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, and um, there would have been, if there had been, say, 120 or 130 votes against going to war instead of just 50, as there were, that would have been a major sign of division in the country. And, and the anti-war movement, um, uh, which was uh, very much on the defensive yeah, uh, by that time, might have yeah. been much stronger, it might have been civil disobedience, there might have been large strikes, some unions were even threatening strikes anyway, so we might have had a country in turmoil, much like, uh, much as it was in turmoil during the Vietnam War. Yeah, yeah, and there was, and, and I've seen, oftentimes, I've, I've heard it said that politics and protest are both necessary, but neither are sufficient, and usually the two don't quite work together, but I think they did back at the time. I did want to make sure to bring up the subject of the Espionage and Sedition Acts of 1917-1918. As you write, the anti-militarists labeled the new onslaught against them a domestic form of Prussianism, employing the state to crush the liberties of its citizens. What did they mean by that? And what happened to the traditional right to dissent and the ACLU came out of that? Yep. And, and just, you know, as you talk about that, the, was it a precursor to the anti-communist witch hunts of the 1950s? It's a lot to talk about, I know. Yes, and then precursor to the Red Scare of 1919, 1920, too. Oh, true. <laughs> it came directly out of the war. <clears throat> um, well, um, I think... Uh, and I'm worried about this. The most important reason why Congress passed and, and the uh, Attorney General uh, enforced, uh, other parts of the government enforced, too, these pretty draconian measures, uh, which in effect made it illegal to give speeches against the war um, yeah. uh, and to give speeches against the draft, uh, which was instituted soon after the war was declared, uh, and even in 1918 to disparage the president. Uh, that was part of the. Uh, um, as, uh, the Sedition Acts, uh, which are amendments to the Espionage Act, they were passed in 1918. 
the major reason why these were passed, I think, uh, was because of a fear um, that the anti-war feeling in the country would would continue. And uh, if expressed uh, uh, openly um, and freely, uh, would make it difficult to prosecute the war. So, in a sense, this is this is a rational fear. I think uh, that certainly one of the reasons why anti-war. Um, uh, open anti-war sentiment does decrease uh, after the U.S. declares war uh, is because of fear. You know, uh, socialist uh, newspapers, uh, uh, socialist party in this country opposed the war. They were put out of business. Uh, the, the the most important socialist in America, Eugene Debs, uh, gave a speech in 1918 um, in Ohio, and he was put in jail for 10 years yeah. uh, for giving that speech. Uh, just a speech. Nothing. He didn't call for yeah. violence, <laughs> uh, violent protest at all. Um, and uh, and so, you know, this uh, was unprecedented in America. Um, nothing like this had happened since 1790s uh, during uh, uh, the John Adams administration. Um, and, uh, and it did, I think, uh, begin a tradition uh, of uh, suspicion, uh, let's put it that yeah, way, yeah. Um, against uh, of people who opposed America's wars, uh, whether rightly or wrongly uh, opposed those wars. And... Uh, um, and I think also it, it helped to uh, justify uh, the Pomerades and other aspects mm-hmm. of the Red Scare after the war was over, because a lot of people who opposed the war were were socialists or anarchists. Uh, Emma Goldman was put in jail, for yes. example, leading anarchists in America during the war for opposing the draft. And some of those people, like Goldman, were deported after the war was yeah. over as, as enemy aliens. Uh, and... Uh, Others were put in jail. Uh, the American Legion, which was formed out of World War One, went around uh, mm. lifting up uh, union meetings and so forth. Uh, the leading uh, uh, radical labor organization in America, the Industrial Workers of the World, was in effect uh, broken up by the courts um, for uh, opposing the draft. So, so uh, these laws had uh, a real chilling effect on dissent in America. And as yeah. you mentioned, uh, the American Civil Liberties. Civil the ACLU, which was uh, formed as a National Civil Liberties Bureau, right. was formed by lawyers and, and activists who wanted to defend people who'd been put in jail for opposing the war. And uh, it still, you know, <laughs> has, uh, oh, yeah. supports, of course, free speech uh, at, at any time, wartime and peacetime. Yeah, we've become a uh, national security state, a surveillance state. It seems like a lot of that uh, came out of this particular period. And a lot of people at the time were talking about uh, uh, the democratic control of foreign policy and the removal of the economic causes of war. These seems like ideas that are more applicable than ever to the challenges we face in 2017. And I just wanted to ask, many of the peace people at the time were called traitors. By looking at what happened with American foreign and military policy, as well as the effects on democracy itself ever since, would it be fair to say that maybe they weren't traitors? Maybe if some of them were actually prophets that we should pay attention to? I think so. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Well, a fascinating book. Just an, an important read. I highly recommend it. War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Thank you so much for being with us, uh, Michael Kazin. Uh, and it's put out by Simon Schuster. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ah! 